Hello! Welcome to Seize the GM. I have wanted to do this project of doing Victorian ghost stories at Christmas time for a few years now. And I finally got around to getting it done. And I just wanted to say a lot of this is partly me as well as the host of the October Pod YouTube channel. And we have, we both did a story and it's funny that they both happen to be Dickens. But I just wanted to let everybody know this was kind of a, a project that I've wanted to do for a few years. And we finally got it off the ground. So here we go. Enjoy. The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sexton by Charles Dickens. In an old abbey town, down in this part of the country, a long, long while ago, so long that the story must be a true one, because our great-grandfathers implicitly believed it. There, officiated as sexton and gravedigger in the courtyard, one Gabriel Grubb. It was by no means follows that because a man is a sexton and constantly surrounded by the emblems of mortality, therefore he should be a morose and melancholy man. Your undertakers are the merriest fellows in the world, and I once had the honor of being on intimate terms with a mute who in private life and off-duty was as comical and jocose a little fellow as ever chirped out a devil-may-care song without a hitch in his memory or drained off a good stiff glass without stopping for breath. But notwithstanding these precedents of the contrary, Gabriel Grubb was an ill-conditioned, cross-grained, surly fellow a morose and lonely man who consorted with nobody but himself and an old wicker bottle which fitted into his large deep waistcoat pocket and who eyed each merry face as it passed him by with such a deep scowl of malice and ill humor it was difficult to meet without feeling somewhat the worse for. A little before twilight, one Christmas Eve, Gabriel shouldered his spade, lighted his lantern, and betook himself toward the old churchyard, for he had got a grave to finish by next morning. And feeling very low, he thought it might raise his spirits, perhaps, if he went on with his work at once. As he went his way up the ancient street, he saw the cheerful light of the blazing fires gleaming through the old casements, and heard the loud laugh and the cheerful shouts of those who were assembled around them. He marked the bustling preparations for the next day's cheer, and smelled the numerous savory odors consistent thereupon. As they steamed up from the kitchen windows in clouds, all this was gall and wormwood to the heart of Gabriel Grubb. And when groups of children bounded out of the houses, tripped across the road, and were met before they could knock at the opposite door by half a dozen curly-haired little rascals who crowded around them as they flocked upstairs to spend the evening in their Christmas games, Gabriel smiled grimly and clutched the handle of his spade with a firmer grip as he thought of measles, Scarlet fever, thrush, whooping cough, and a good many other sources of consolation besides. In this happy frame of mind, Gabriel strode along, returning a short, sullen growl to the good-humored greetings of such of his neighbors as now and then passed him, until he turned into the dark lane which led to the churchyard. Now Gabriel had been looking forward to reaching the dark lane because it was, generally speaking, a nice, gloomy, mournful place, onto which the town people did not much care to go, except in broad daylight and when the sun was shining. 
Consequently, he was not a little indignant to hear a young urchin roaring up some jolly song about a Merry Christmas in this very sanctuary, which had been called Coffin Lane ever since the days of the old abbey and the time of the shaven-headed monks. As Gabriel walked on, the voice drew nearer, and he found it proceeded from a small boy who was just hurrying along to join one of the little parties in the old street, and who, partly to keep himself company and partly to prepare himself for the occasion, was shouting out the song at the highest pitch of his lungs. So Gabriel waited until the boy came up, and then dodged him into a corner and wrapped him over the head with his lantern five or six times, just to teach him to modulate his voice. And as the boy hurried away with his hand on his head, singing quite a different sort of tune, Gabriel Grubb chuckled very heartily to himself and entered the churchyard, locking the gate behind him. He took off his coat, set down his lantern, and getting into the unfinished grave, worked at it for an hour or so with right good will. But the earth was hardened with the frost, and it was no very easy matter to break it up and shovel it out, and although it, there was a moon, it was a very young one, and shed little light upon the grave, which was in the shadow of the church. At any other time, these obstacles would have made Gabriel Grubb very moody and miserable. But he was so well pleased with having stopped the small boy singing, that he took little heed of the scanty progress he had made, and looked down into the grave, when he had finished work for the night. The grim satisfaction murmured as he gathered up his things. Brave lodgings for one, brave lodgings for one, a few feet of cold earth when life is done, a stone at the head, a stone at the feet, a rich juicy meal for the worms to eat, rank grass overhead and damp clay around, Brave lodgings for one, there in holy ground. Ha, 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 laughed Gabriel Grubb as he sat himself down on a flat tombstone, which was a favorite resting place of his, and drew forth his wicker bottle. A coffin at Christmas, a Christmas box. Ha, 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 repeated a voice, which sounded close behind him. Gabriel paused, in some alarm in the act of raising the wicker bottle to his lips, and looked round. The bottom of the oldest grave about him was not more still and quiet than the churchyard in the pale moonlight. The cold hoar-frost glistened on the tombstones and sparkled like rows of gems among the stone carvings of the old church. The snow lay hard and crisp upon the ground and spread over the thickly strewn mounds of earth. So white and smooth a cover, it seemed as if corpses lied there, hidden only by their winding sheets. Not the faintest rustle broke the profound tranquility of the solemn scene. Sound itself appeared to be frozen up. All was so cold and still. It was the echoes, said Gabriel Grubb, rising the bottle to his lips again. It was not, said a deep voice. Gabriel started up and stood rooted to the spot with astonishment and terror, for his eyes rested on a form that made his blood run cold. Seated on an upright tombstone close to him was a strange unearthly figure whom Gabriel felt at once was no being of this world. His long, fantastic legs, which might have reached the ground, were cocked up and crossed after a quaint, fantastic fashion. His sinewy arms were bare, and his hands rested on his knees. On his short, round body, he wore a clothes covering, ornamented with small slashes. A short cloak dangled at his back. The collar was cut into curious peaks which served the goblin in lieu of ruff and neckerchief, 
and his shoes curled up at his toes into long points. On his head, he wore a broad-brimmed sugarloaf hat, garnished with a single feather. The hat was covered with the white frost, and the goblin looked as if he had sat on the same tombstone very comfortably for two or three hundred years. He was sitting perfectly still. His tongue was put out as if in derision, and he was grinning at Gabriel Grubb with such a grin as only a goblin could call up. It was not the echoes, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb was paralyzed and could make no reply. What do you do here on Christmas Eve, said the goblin sternly. I came to dig a grave, sir, stammered Gabriel Grubb. What man wanders among graves and churchyards on such a night as this, cried the goblin. Gabriel Grubb, Gabriel Grubb, screamed a wild chorus of voices that seemed to fill the churchyard. Gabriel looked fearfully round. Nothing was to be seen. What have you got in that bottle, said the goblin. Holland, sir, replied the sexton, trembling more than ever, for he had bought it of the smugglers, and he thought that perhaps his questioner might be in the excise department of the goblins. Who drinks Holland's alone, and in a churchyard, on such a night as this, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb, Gabriel Grubb, exclaimed the wild voices again. The goblin leered maniacally at the terrified sexton, and then raised his voice, exclaimed, And who, then, is our fair and lawful prize? To this inquiry, the invisible chorus replied, in a strain that sounded like the voices of many choristers singing to the mighty swell of the old church organ, a strain that seemed born of the sexton's ears upon a wild wind, and to die away as it passed onward, but the burden of the reply was still the same. Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! The goblin grinned a broader grin than before, as he said, Well, Gabriel, what do you say to this? The sexton gasped for breath. What do you think of this, Gabriel? said the goblin, picking up his foot in the air on either side of the tombstone, and looked at the turned-up points with as much complacency as if he had been contemplating the most fashionable pair of Wellingtons on all Bond Street. It's... It's very curious, sir, replied the sexton, half dead with fright. Very curious and very pretty, but I think I'll go back and finish my work, sir, if you please. Work, said the goblin. What work? The grave, sir. Making the grave, stammered the sexton. Oh, the grave, ah, said the goblin. Who makes graves at a time when all other men are merry and takes a pleasure in it? Again, the mysterious voices replied, Gabriel Grubb, Gabriel Grubb. I am afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin, thrusting his tongue forth further into his cheek than ever, and a most astonishing tongue it was. I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin. Under favor, sir, replied the horror-stricken sexton. I don't think they can, sir. They, they don't know me, sir. I don't think the gentleman has ever seen me, sir. Oh, yes, they have, replied the goblin. We know the man with the sulky face and grim scowl that comes down the street tonight throwing his evil looks at the children, and grasping his burying spade the tighter. We know the man who struck the boy in the envious malice of his heart, because the boy could be merry, and he could not. We know him. We know him.
Here, the goblin gave a loud, shrill laugh, which the echoes returned twentyfold, and throwing his legs up in the air, stood upon his head, or rather upon the very point of his sugarloaf hat, on the narrow edge of the tombstone, whence he threw a somerset with extraordinary agility right to the sexton's feet, at which he planted himself in the attitude in which tailors generally sit upon the shopboard. I'm, I'm afraid I must leave you, sir, said the sexton, making the effort to move. Leave us, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb going to leave us? <laughs> As the goblin laughed, the sexton observed for one instant a brilliant illumination within the windows of the church as if the whole building were lighting up. It disappeared. The organ pealed forth a lively air, the whole troop of goblins, the very counterpart of the first one, poured into the churchyard and began playing at leapfrog with the tombstones, never stopping for an instant to take a breath, but overing the highest among them, one after the other, with the most marvelous dexterity. The first goblin was the most astonishing leaper, and none of the others could come near him. Even in the extremity of his terror, the sexton could not help observing that while his friends were content to leap over the common-sized gravestones, the first one took the family vaults, iron railings and all, with as much ease as if they had been so many street posts. At last the game reached to a most exciting pitch. The organ played quicker and quicker, and the goblins leaped faster and faster, coiling themselves up, rolling head over heels onto the ground, and bounding over the tombstones like footballs. The sexton's brain whirled round with the rapidity of the motion he beheld, and his legs reeled beneath him. As the spirits flew before his eyes, when the goblin king suddenly darted towards him and laid his hand upon his collar and sank with him through the earth. When Gabriel Grubb had had time to fetch his breath, which the rapidity of his descent had for the moment taken away, he found himself in what appeared to be a large cavern, surrounded on all sides by crowds of goblins, ugly and grim. In the center of the room, on an elevated seat, was stationed his friend of the churchyard, and close behind him stood Gabriel Grubb himself, without power of motion. Cold tonight, said the king of the goblins. Very cold. A glass of something warm here. At this command, half a dozen ophius goblins, with a perpetual smile upon their faces, whom Gabriel Grubb imagined to be courtiers on that account, hastily disappeared and presently returned with a goblet of liquid fire, which they presented to the king. Ah, cried the goblin, whose cheeks and throat were transparent, as he tossed down the flame. This warms one indeed. Bring a bumper of the same for Mr. Grubb. It was in vain for the unfortunate sexton to protest, he was not in the habit of taking anything warm at night. One of the goblins held him while another poured the blazing liquid down his throat. The whole assembly screeched with laughter as he coughed and choked and wiped away the tears which gushed plentifully from his eyes after swallowing the burning drought. And now, said the king, fantastically poking the taper corner of his sugarloaf hat into Sexton's eye, and thereby occasioning him the most exquisite pain. And now, show the man of misery and gloom a few of the pictures from our own great storehouse. As the goblin said this, a thick cloud which obscured the remoter end of the cavern rolled gradually away, and disclosed, apparently at a great distance, a small and scantily furnished, but neat and clean apartment. A crowd of little children were gathered round a bright fire, clinging 
to their mother's gown, and gambling around her chair, the mother occasionally rose and drew aside the window curtain, as if to look for some expected object. A frugal meal was ready, spread upon the table, and an elbow chair was placed near the fire. A knock was heard at the door. The mother opened it, and the children crowded round her, and clapped their hands for joy as their father entered. He was wet and weary, and shook the snow from his garments as the children crowded round him, and seized his cloak, seizing his cloak, hat, stick, and gloves, with busy zeal, ran them from the room. Then, as he sat down to his meal before the fire, the children climbed upon his knee, and the mother sat by his side, and all seemed happiness and comfort. But a change came upon the view, almost imperceptibly. The scene was altered to a small bedroom, where the fairest and youngest child lie dying. The roses had fled from his cheek, and the light from his eye, and even as the sexton looked upon him with the interest he had never felt or known before, he died. His young brothers and sisters crowded round his little bed and seized his tiny hand, so cold and heavy, but they shrank back from its touch and looked with awe on his infant face. For calm and tranquil as it was, and sleeping in rest and peace as the beautiful child seemed to be, they saw that he was dead, and they knew that he was an angel looking down upon and blessing them from a bright and happy heaven. As the light cloud passed across the picture, and again the subject changed, the father and mother were old and helpless now, and the number of those about them was diminished more than half. But content and cheerfulness sat on every face and beamed in every eye as they crowded round the fireside and told and listened to old stories of earlier and bygone days. Slowly and peacefully, the father sank into the grave, and soon after, the sharer of all his cares and troubles followed him to a place of rest. The few who yet survived them kneeled by their tomb and watered the green turf which covered it with their tears, then rose and turned away, sadly and mournfully, but not with bitter cries or despairing lamentations, for they knew that they should one day meet again. And once more, they mixed with the busy world, and their content and cheerfulness was restored. The cloud settled upon the picture and concealed it from the sexton's view. What do you think of that? said the goblin, turning his large face towards Gabriel Grubb. Gabriel murmured on something about it being very pretty, and looked somewhat ashamed as the goblin bent his fiery eyes upon him. "'You miserable man!' said the goblin, in a tone of excessive contempt. "'You!' he appeared disposed to add more, but indignation choked his utterance, so he lifted up one of his very pliable legs, and flourishing it above his head a little to an Sure, his aim administered a good sound kick to Gabriel Grubb. Immediately after which, all the goblins in waiting crowded round the wretched sexton and kicked him without mercy. According to established and invariable custom of courtiers upon earth, who kick whom royalty kicks, and hug whom royalty hugs. Show him some more," said the king of the goblins. At these words, the cloud was dispelled, and a rich and beautiful landscape was disclosed to view. There was just such another, to this day, within half a mile of the old abbey town. The sun shone 
From out of the clear blue sky, the water sparkled beneath his rays, and the trees looked greener and the flowers more gay beneath its cheering influence. The water rippled on with a pleasant sound. The trees rustled in the light wind that murmured among their leaves. The birds sang upon the bough, and the lark caroled on high her welcome to the morning. Yes, it was morning, the bright, balmy morning of summer. The minuettist leaf, the smallest blade of grass, was instinct with life. The ant crept forth to her daily toil. The butterfly fluttered and basked in the warm rays of the sun. Myriads of insects spread their translucent wings and reveled in their brief but happy existence. Man walked forth, elated with the scene, and all was brightness and splendor. You are a miserable man, said the king of goblins, in a more contemptuous tone than before. And again the king of the goblins gave his leg a flourish, and again it descended on the shoulders of the sexton. And again the attendant goblins imitated the example of their chief. Many a time the cloud winding came, and many a lesson it taught to Gabriel Grubb who, although his shoulders smarted with pain from the frequent applications of the goblin's feet, thereon too, looked on with an interest that nothing could diminish. He saw that men who worked hard and earned their scanty bread with lives of labor were cheerful and happy. And to the most ignorant, the sweet face of nature was a never-failing source of cheerfulness and joy. He saw those who had been delicately nourished and tenderly brought up, cheerful under privation and superior to suffering that would have crushed many of a rougher grain because they bore within their own bosoms the materials of happiness, contentment, and peace. He saw that women, the tenderest and most fragile of all God's creatures, were the oftenest superior to sorrow, adversity, and distress. And he saw that it was because they bore in their own hearts an inexhaustible wellspring of affection and devotion. Above all, he saw that men like himself who snarled at the mirth and cheerfulness of others were the foulest weeds on the fair surface of the earth and setting all the good of the world against the evil, he came to the conclusion it was a very decent and respectable sort of world after all. No sooner had he formed it than the cloud which closed over the last picture seemed to settle on his senses and lull him to repose. One by one the goblins faded from his sight, and as the last one disappeared, he sank to sleep. The day had broken when Gabriel Grubb awoke, and he found himself lying at length on the flat gravestone in the churchyard, with the wicker bottle laying empty by his side, and his coat, spade, and lantern all well whitened by the last night's frost, scattered on the ground. The stone on which he had first seen the goblin seated stood bolt upright before him, and the grave at which he had worked the night before was not far at all. At first he began to doubt the reality of his adventures, but the acute pain in his shoulders when he attempted to rise assured him that the kicking of the goblins was certainly not ideal. He was staggered again by observing no traces of footsteps in the snow on which the goblins had played at leapfrog with the gravestones. But he speedily accounted for this circumstance when he remembered that, being spirits, they would leave no visible impression behind them. So great Gabriel Grubb got to his feet as well as he could, for the pain in his back, and brushing the frost off his coat, put it on and turned his face toward the town. But... He was an altered man. 
he could not bear the thought of returning to a place where his repentance would be scoffed at and his reformation disbelieved. He hesitated for a few moments and then turned away to wander where he might and seek his bread elsewhere. The lantern, the spade, and the wicker bottle were found that day in the churchyard. There were a great many speculations about the sexton's fate. At first, it was speedily determined that he had been carried away by the goblins, and there was no wanting some very credible witness who had distinctly seen him whisked through the air on the back of a chestnut horse, blind of one eye, with the hindquarters of a lion and the tail of a bear. At length, all this was devoutly believed, and the next sexton used to exhibit to the curious for a trifling emolument a good-sized piece of the church weathercock, which had been accidentally kicked off by the aforesaid horse in his aerial flight, and picked up by himself in the churchyard a year or two afterwards. Unfortunately, these stories were somewhat disturbed by the unlooked-for reappearance of Gabriel Grubb himself, some ten years afterwards. A ragged, contented, rheumatic old man. He told his story to the clergyman and also to the mayor, and in course of time it began to be received as a matter of history, in which form it was continued down to this very day. The believers in the weathercock tale, having misplaced their confidence once, were not easily prevailed upon to part with it again. So they looked as wise as they could, shrugged their shoulders, touched their foreheads, and murmured something about Gabriel Grubb having drunk all the Hollands and then fallen asleep on the flat tombstone. And they affected to explain what he supposed he had witnessed in the goblin's cavern by saying that he had seen the world and grown wiser. But this opinion, which was by no means a popular one at any time, gradually died off. And be the matter how it may, as Gabriel Grubb was afflicted with rheumatism to the end of his days, this story has at least one moral if it teaches no better one, and that is that if a man turns sulky and drink himself at Christmas time, he may make up his mind to be not a bit the better for it. Let the spirits be never so good, or let them be ever as many degrees beyond proof as those which Gabriel Grubb saw in the Goblin's Cavern. The Signalman by Charles Dickens Narrated by Edward October Hello! Below there! When he heard my voice, he was standing at the door of his box, with a flag in his hand, furled round its short pole. Instead of looking up to where I stood on the top of the steep cutting, nearly over his head, he turned about and looked down the line. Hello! Hello! Below! Then he turned again and, raising his eyes, saw my figure high above him. Is there a path by which I may come down? He looked up at me without replying. Just then there came a vague vibration in the earth and air, quickly changing into a violent pulsation and an oncoming rush that caused me to start back, as though it had force to draw me down. I looked down again and saw him refurling the flag he had shown while the train went by. He motioned with his rolled-up flag towards a point on my level. There, I found a rough zigzagging path notched out. The cutting was deep through a clammy stone that became oozier and wetter as I went down. 
When I reached the little man, I saw that he was standing as though he were waiting for me to appear. He was dark and sallow. His post was in as solitary and dismal a place as ever I saw. On either side, a dripping wet wall of jagged stone excluded all view but a strip of sky. The view on one side, a crooked prolongation of this great dungeon. On the other side, the gloomy entrance to the black forbidding tunnel marked by an eerie red light that scarcely pierced its murky depths. So little sunlight ever found its way to this spot that it had an earthy, deadly smell, and so much cold wind rushed through it that it struck chill to me, as if I had left the natural world. This was a lonesome post to occupy, I said, and it had riveted my attention when I looked down from up yonder. A visitor must be a rarity, though not an unwelcome rarity, I hoped. He directed a most unusual look towards the red light near the tunnel's mouth, and looked about it, as if something were missing from it, and then looked at me. That light was part of his charge, was it not? Don't you know it is? <laughs> you look at me as though you had a dread of me, sir. I was doubtful whether I had seen you before. Where? He pointed to the red light. My good fellow, what should I do there? I never was there, you may swear. Yes. I think I may. His manner cleared, like my own. He replied to my remarks with precision. Had he much to do there? Yes, to change the signal, to trim those lights, and to turn this iron handle now and then was all he had to do. Regarding those many long and lonely hours of which I seemed to make so much, he said that he had grown used to such a routine. He had taught himself a language down here, and had also worked at fractions and decimals, and a little algebra, but he confessed to be a poor hand at figures. Was it necessary for him, when on duty, always to remain in that channel of damp air? And could he never rise into the sunshine from between those high stone walls? Under some conditions there would be less upon the line than under others, and the same held good as to certain hours of the day and night. In bright weather, he did choose occasions for getting out of these shadows, but he was at all times liable to be called by his electric bell, and listening for it redoubled his anxiety. Thus the relief was less than I would suppose. He took me into his box, where there was a fire, a desk for an official record, a telegraphic instrument, and the little bell of which he had spoken. He was several times during our conversations interrupted by the little bell and had to read off messages and send replies. Once he had to stand without the door and display a flag as a train passed. In the discharge of his duties, I observed him to be exact and vigilant, breaking off his course at a syllable and remaining silent until his task was done. I should have set this man down as one of the safest of men to be employed in that capacity, but for the occasions while he was speaking that he twice broke off with fallen color, turned towards the little bell when it did not ring, opened the door of the hut and looked towards the red light near the mouth of the tunnel. On both occasions he came back to the fire with an inexplicable air upon him. What is your trouble? It is very difficult to impart, sir. It is very, very difficult to speak of. Let me ask you a question. What made you cry, Hello, below there, tonight? Heavens knows, I, I cried something to that effect. Not to that effect, sir. Those very words, I know them well. As you wish, those were my very words. I spoke them because I saw you below. It was for no other reason, then? What other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they were conveyed to you in any supernatural way? No. He bent forward as he spoke. I took you for someone else earlier. That troubles me. That mistake? No. That's someone else. Who is it? I don't know. I never saw the face 
The left arm is across the face, and the right arm is violently waved, like this. He gesticulated his arm with the utmost passion and vehemence. For God's sake, clear the way. One moonlight night, I heard a voice cry, Hello, below there. I looked from that door and saw someone else standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving as I showed you. It cried, Look out! Look out! Hello! Below there! Look out! I turned my lamp on red and ran towards the figure calling, What has happened? Where? It stood just outside the blackness of the tunnel, keeping the sleeve across its eyes. I ran right up at it and had my hand stretched out to pull the sleeve away when it was gone. Gone into the tunnel? No, I ran into the tunnel 500 yards. I stopped and held my lamp above my head and saw only the wet stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again faster this time, for I had a dread of the place upon me, and I looked all around the red light. I went up the iron ladder to the gallery atop it, and I came back down again to telegraph both ways. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back both ways. All well. I then replied that this figure must be a deception of his sense of sight. As to an imaginary cry, do but listen for a moment to the wind in this unnatural valley and to the wild harp it makes of the telegraph wires. He shook his head and slowly touching my arm. Within six hours after the appearance, a terrible accident on this line happened. You may have read about it. And within ten hours, the dead and wounded were brought along through the tunnel over the spot where the figure had stood. A shudder crept over me. I cannot deny the remarkable coincidence, one that must prey upon your imagination. He glanced over his shoulder with hollow eyes. This was just a year ago. Some months passed, and I had recovered from the shock. Then one morning, at daybreak, I looked towards the red light and saw the specter again. Did it cry out? No. It was silent. It leaned against the shaft of the light, and both hands before the face, like this. He mimicked an attitude of mourning, as one might see in stone figures on tombs. Did you go up to it? I came in and I sat down to collect my thoughts and my composure. When I went to the door again, daylight was above me and the ghost was gone. But nothing followed? Nothing came of this? He touched my arm with forefinger twice or thrice, giving a ghastly nod each time. That very day as a train came out of the tunnel, I noticed, at a carriage window on my side, a confusion of hands and heads, and something waved. I saw it, just in time to signal the driver to stop. He shut off and put his brake on. I ran after it and heard terrible screams and cries from inside the carriage. A beautiful young lady had died instantaneously in one of the compartments. She was brought in here and laid down on this floor between us. I pushed my chair back with a start as I looked from the boards at which he pointed. True, sir. True. Precisely as it happened. He resumed. Now, sir, mark this, and judge how my mind is troubled. The specter came back a week ago, ever since it has been there, now and again, by fits and starts at the danger light. What does it seem to do? He repeated that former violent gesticulation of, for God's sake, clear the way. Then, he went on, I have no peace or rest of it. It calls to me in an agonized manner. Below there, look out, look out. Its hands waving to me. It rings my little bell. Did it ring for you yesterday evening when I was here and you went to the door? Twice. 
See how your imagination misleads you. My eyes were on the bell, and my ears were open to its ring, and I assure you, it did not ring at those times, nor at any other time, except when it was rung by the station communicating with you. I have never made a mistake like that, sir. Not yet. I have never confused the specter's ring with the man's. The ghost's ring is a strange vibration in the bell that rings but produces no visible stirring. I don't wonder that you failed to hear it. Yet I heard it. And did the specter seem to be there when you looked out? It was there. Both times. Will you come to the door with me now and look for it? He bit his under lip as though he were somewhat unwilling, but arose. I opened the door while he stood in the doorway. There was the danger light. There was the dismal mouth of the tunnel. There were the high, wet stone walls of the cutting. There were the stars above them. Do you see it? No. We went in again and resumed our seats. Now you will fully understand, sir, that what troubles me so dreadfully is the question, what does the specter mean? He said, ruminating with his eyes on the fire. What is the danger? Where? There is danger somewhere on the line, some dreadful calamity. It is not to be doubted this third time, after what has gone before. But what can I do? If I telegraph danger on either side of me, or on both, I can give no reason for it. They would think I was mad. This is the way it would work. Message. Danger. Take care. Answer. What danger? Where? Message. Don't know, but for God's sakes, take care. They would displace me. And who could blame them? When it first stood under the danger light, why not tell me where that accident was to happen? If it must happen, why not tell me it could be averted? If it could have been averted... When on its second coming, it hid its face. Why not give a more explicit message of warning? If it came twice only to show me that its warnings were true, why not warn me plainly now? Why not go to someone with credit to be believed and power to act, rather than a mere poor signalman? When I saw him in this state, I saw that for his sake, as well as for the public safety, what I must now do was to compose his mind. Therefore, setting aside all question of reality or unreality between us, I represented to him that whoever thoroughly discharged his duty must do well, and that at least it was his comfort that he understood his duty, though he did not understand those confounding appearances. In this effort I succeeded. He became calm, and I left him at two in the morning. I had offered to stay through the night, but he would not hear of it. I ultimately resolved to offer to accompany him, otherwise keeping his secret for the present, to the wisest medical practitioner we could hear of in these parts, and to take his opinion. A change in his time of duty would come round next night, he had apprised me, and he would be off an hour or two after sunrise, and on again soon after sunset. I had appointed to return accordingly. Next evening was a lovely one, and I walked out early to enjoy it. The sun was not yet quite down when I traversed the field path near the top of the deep cutting. I would extend my walk, I said to myself, until time to go to the signalman's box. Before my stroll, I stepped to the brink and mechanically looked down from the point from which I had first seen him. I cannot describe the thrill when, close at the mouth of the tunnel, I saw the appearance of a man with his left sleeve across his eyes, passionately waving his right arm. The nameless horror that oppressed me suddenly seized hold of me, for, 
I then saw that this appearance of a man was a man indeed, and that there was a group of other men standing about, to whom he seemed to be rehearsing the gesture he made. With an irresistible sense that something was wrong, I descended the notched path with haste. What is the matter? Signalman killed this morning, sir. Not the man I know. You will recognize him, sir. If you knew him, said the man who spoke for the others, solemnly uncovering his own head and raising an end of the tarpaulin, covering a lump on the ground. Oh, how did this happen? He was cut down by an engine, sir. He'd struck the light and had the lamp in his hand. His back was towards the engine as he came out of the tunnel, and she cut him down. That man there drove her, and was showing how it happened. Show the gentleman, Tom. The man, who wore a rough, dark uniform, stepped back to his former place at the mouth of the tunnel. Coming round the curve in the tunnel, sir, he said. I saw him at the end. There was no time to check speed, as he didn't take heed of the whistle. I shut it off when we were running down upon him, and called to him as loud as I could call. What did you say? I said, below there, look out, look out. For God's sake, clear the way. I put this arm before my eyes, not to see, and I waved this arm to the last. But it was no use. I'm Edward October. If you enjoyed this ghost story, join me as I narrate true, true-ish, and classic tales of horror and the paranormal with a retro vintage aesthetic. New videos drop on YouTube twice each month. Find OctoberPod on Twitter at OctoberPodVHS or on the World Wide Web at OctoberPodVHS.com. OctoberPod, retro horror for bold individualists.